If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of March 21, 2021. The podcast that invented slippery sandpaper. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's commingle the news of the bogus. And it looks like we finally have our first real review of potential issues from the 2020 election. The Michigan Court of Claims just ruled on Michigan's signature matching criteria, which have been changed unilaterally by the Secretary of State and not the legislature as the Constitution requires. In October, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson put out guidance to county and local clerks for signature matching on absentee ballots for the 2020 election, saying that a signature should be presumed valid unless it differed, quote, in multiple, significant, and obvious respects from the signature on file. Allegan County Clerk Robert Ganetsky and the Michigan Republican Party sued Benson in her official capacity in December. Michigan law requires voters to sign applications for absentee ballots as well as the return envelopes. Those signatures must be compared against signatures in the qualified voter file or the master registration card to determine if the signature is a match. According to Judge Christopher Murray's ruling, Benson's advice, quote, begins with the presumption that the signature on an absent voter ballot application or envelope is valid. Further, the form instructs clerks to, if there are any redeeming qualities in the application or return envelope signature as compared to the signature on file, treat the signature as valid. Whenever possible, election officials were to resolve slight dissimilarities in favor of finding that the voter's signature was valid. It also said that a signature was valid if it had, quote, more matching features than non-matching. In other words, what any halfway competent forger could achieve. According to the ruling, quote, By all accounts, the guidance set forth in that document was not limited to the then-upcoming November 2020 general election, nor has it been rescinded. Rather, it appears that the guidance remains in effect for local clerks with respect to upcoming elections. Judge Murray ruled, Defendants argue that no actual controversy exists because the legislature could not change the applicable law or because Defendant Benson could decide to revoke the guidance. That argument would seek to turn the requirements of declaratory relief on their head and would eviscerate the purpose of declaratory relief. If the court were to adopt the view that no actual controversy exists because the law could change, there could be no limit to the number of cases that could be dismissed as moot. Here, Plaintiffs have sought a declaration as to their legal rights with respect to the validity of a currently existing directive issued by Defendant Benson in advance of the next election. That the law could hypothetically change in the future is not a reason to avoid issuing a declaration of the party's currently existing legal rights as plaintiffs have sought here. Indeed, the ability to seek an advanced declaration of legal rights on an existing policy is one of the very reasons why the declaratory judgment rule was adopted in the first instance. The problem, of course, is that Benson is part of the executive branch, not the legislative, and any rule changes must go through the legislative process. The Administrative Procedures Act of 1969 sets up the rulemaking procedures for state agencies. The plaintiffs contend that this rule was a violation of that act. The judge agreed, quote, 
Nowhere in this state's election law has the legislature indicated that the signatures are to be presumed valid, nor did the legislature require that signatures are to be accepted so long as there are any redeeming qualities in the application or return envelope signature as compared with the signature on file. Policy determinations like the one at issue, which places a thumb on the scale in favor of a signature's validity, should be made pursuant to properly promulgated rules under the APA or by the legislature. Defendant issued a mandatory directive and required local election officials to apply a presumption of validity to all signatures on absent voter ballot applications and on absent voter ballots. The presumption is found nowhere in statute. The mandatory presumption goes beyond the realm of mere advice and direction and instead is a substantive directive that adds to the pertinent signature matching statutes. And for similar reasons, defendants' arguments about the efficiency and the need for quick action do not change the court's decision. The standards issued amounted to a rule that should have been promulgated in accordance with the APA. And absent compliance with the APA, the rule is invalid. It wasn't a full win for the plaintiffs. Judge Murray rejected their petition for an audit of 2020 ballots under the proper rules, so we'll likely never know how much of an effect this had on the 2020 results. Nonetheless, Ted Goodman, communications director for the Michigan Republican Party, says they're pleased with the ruling. Quote, We are pleased that the court agreed that the Secretary of State cannot direct local clerks to ignore Michigan election law. However, we are disappointed that clerks were told not to truly verify absentee ballot signatures for the 2020 election. We have to ensure that our elections are safe and secure, and I don't think anyone is opposed to certain steps that ensure and protect the vote of each and every American. Even if the courts say it's too late to change the official outcome of the election, as it will be too disruptive to replace now-established politicians and their administrations, why not at least count the votes based on the proper rules so that we can see for sure what the count should have been? One side insists that this is all just a bunch of conspiracy garbage and it never made any difference. The other side insists the election was absolutely stolen. So why not find out and answer the question once and for all. Wouldn't that be better for the current debate as well as providing guidance for the future? Again, what the hell is wrong with just wanting to find out? If you're looking for ways to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand advertisements, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to listen to the podcast and all of my videos on bittube.tv or lbry.tv to get cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. Or if you listen to the podcast at the podcast page, you'll also generate crypto. You can also go to airtime.bogosity.tv to get the airtime extension and generate crypto for yourself and the creators on the web anywhere you go, including my YouTube channel. Get five tubes free just for installing the extension and signing up, and then simply browse the web as normal. Easily monetize your favorite creators and yourself with cryptocurrency without advertising on bidtube.tv or lbry.tv or with the airtime extension at airtime.pagosity.tv. 
We've covered before reasons why texting is insecure. Not only is it important because our personal texts to others can be intercepted and viewed, even worse, when SMS, the technology behind texting, is used as a form of two-factor authentication, it can actually provide users with a false sense of security. Secure encrypted alternatives such as Signal should be considered to replace texting, and time-based protocols such as those used by Google Authenticator or Authy should be preferred for two-factor authentication. We've known this, but cybersecurity expert Brian Krebs points out how it's even worse than we thought, and almost trivial for practically anyone to spy on whatever texts they want. We're not just talking about setting up a compromised cell transceiver or bribing employees at mobile stores. A security researcher and privacy advocate known on Twitter as Lucky225, Chief Information Officer for Oki Systems, intercepted text messages intended for Vice.com's Joseph Cox with his permission. He did it using a service called Sakari, which helps celebrities and businesses do SMS marketing. It costs $16. Cox wrote, Sakari offers a free trial to anyone wishing to see what the company's dashboard looks like. The cheapest plan, which allows customers to add a phone number they want to send and receive texts as, is where the $16 goes. As Lucky225 showed, a user can just sign up with someone else's number and receive their text messages instead. Sakari has since taken steps to prevent its service from being misused. But the problem wasn't Sakari. The problem is that they could do this because SMS is fundamentally insecure. Lucky225 said, quote, It's not a Sakari thing. It's an industry-wide thing. And there are many of these SMS enablement providers. And it would be fairly easy for hackers to set up a malicious one or to exploit vulnerabilities in legitimate providers. Before they fixed the issue, the only thing Sakari put in the way of a user misusing the service was a letter of authorization from the user stating they had the authority to act on behalf of the owner of the number in question. All the user had to do was say, Sure I do! Honest! Trust me! Lucky225 wrote on his Medium blog, quote, In essence... Once you have a reseller account with these VoIP wholesalers, you can change the net number ID of any phone number to your wholesale provider's NNID and begin receiving SMS text messages with virtually no authentication whatsoever. No SIM swap, SS7 attacks, or port outs needed. Just type the target's phone number in a text box and hit submit, and within minutes you can start receiving SMS text messages for them. They won't even be alerted that anything has happened, as their voice and data services will continue to work as usual. Surprisingly, despite the fact that I publicly disclosed this in 2018, nothing has been done to stop this relatively unsophisticated attack. Although the major mobile companies have put their own protections in place, Lucky225 said, quote, I'm pretty sure it's only the big carriers that they're protecting now, because everyone is being so tight-lipped about this right now. And, of course, you don't have security without transparency. While it's nice to know they've taken some action, this isn't a good sign. Krebs advises his readers only to give out your phone number to anyone who absolutely needs it, and to remove it from your online accounts whenever possible. He wrote, Phone numbers were never designed to be identity documents. But that's effectively what they've become. It's time we stopped letting everyone treat them that way. Most online services require users to supply a mobile phone number when setting up the account, but do not require the phone number to remain associated with the account after it is established. 
I advise readers to remove their phone numbers from accounts whenever possible and to take advantage of a mobile app to generate any one-time codes for multi-factor authentication. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government sensors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. TechDirt's Mike Masnick has an excellent article covering something we've mentioned several times on this podcast. What European regulators have already tried to do, and U.S. politicians are currently trying to do with the Internet, will basically only allow Facebook, Google, and Twitter to keep functioning, at least in the way they are now, and really put the screws on smaller competition. He mentions Daphne Keller, director of the Program on Platform Regulation at Stanford's Cyber Policy Center, who mentions how much of the effort at Internet reform seems to treat the Internet as if it were made up entirely of Facebook, Google, and Twitter, the big three, when in fact they're only a tiny part of the overall Internet. Journalists have this problem too, and Keller says the more they talk about the Internet in terms of the big three, the more it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The PACT Act is, at best, a sloppy attempt at rendering Section 230 ineffective. There are all sorts of disclosure obligations, regulations of editorial processes, and many other things that will be significant policy changes all on their own. Tons of policies with no indication of what problem they're actually trying to solve. It requires that all Internet services publish an acceptable use policy and requires a very convoluted complaint and review process, complete with transparency reporting requirements. Even worse, it treats every website as though it works the same way. It's the sort of crap you'd expect from people who have clearly never done any sort of content moderation, nor talked to anyone who has. The only real change it would make for the big three is an increase in customer support staff. But for most other websites, including Masnick's TechDirt, as he says, quote, The bill is an utter disaster. It treats us the same as it treats Facebook and acts like we need to put in place a massive, expensive customer service content moderation operation that wouldn't make any sense and would only serve to enable our resident trolls to demand that we have to provide a detailed explanation why the community voted down their comments. On Twitter, Keller recommended a standard test suite for policymakers so that they're not just tailoring laws and regulations to the big three, but a few others as well, such as Wikipedia, Cloudflare, Walmart, and the New York Times. Masnick brainstorms a huge list of others including GitHub, Zoom, Amazon, Patreon, Mastodon, Reddit, the Internet Archive, Discord, Dropbox, Kickstarter, and a whole bunch of others. As he writes... 
They all deal with user-generated content and content moderation questions, and for each one, the moderation questions are handled in vastly different ways. The list could be a lot longer. These are just ones I came up with quickly. Of course, the real problem is that every website is unique, and what works well for one website may not work at all for another, as Masnick writes. The great thing about Section 230 is that it allows each of these websites to take their own approach to content moderation, an approach that fits their community. Some of them rely on users to moderate. Some rely on a content moderation team. But if you ran through this list and explored something like the PACT Act, or the even worse Safe Tech Act, you'd quickly realize that it would create impossible demands for many, many of these sites. The Safe Tech Act is probably one of the worst anti-Section 230 bills, as if there were any good ones. It's a smorgasbord of every wet dream that every opponent of free speech ever had. Not only does it pretend that the Big Three are the entire internet, it pretends that Section 230 is there to protect the Big Three, as if they need it, as opposed to protecting smaller and lower budget websites. And it expressly invalidates Section 230 if any money changes hands. As Masnick says, Incredibly, all this would do is move most of the functions of many of these sites, especially the small niche targeted communities, over to the internet giants of Facebook and Google. Does anyone legitimately think that a site like LibraryThing needs to issue twice a year transparency reports on its content moderation decisions? Or that all trails should be required to set up a live call center to respond to complaints about content moderation? Should Matrix be required to create an acceptable use policy? Should the New York Times have to release a transparency report regarding what comments it moderated? For most websites, compliance will be impossible. So who benefits other than trial lawyers and politicians? Well, the big three, because these acts would pretty much destroy any hope anyone has of competing against them. It's almost as if that were the idea. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to scoreify this week's biggest bug on emitter. And this week it goes to the Washington Post for being the ones who kicked off the whole fake news fiasco about Trump supposedly threatening an election official when it was really a settlement conference. If you weren't familiar with that aspect of it, don't feel too bad. The Washington Post deliberately edited the recording to omit the stipulation of both parties that this conversation was for the purpose of settling litigation and was therefore confidential and privileged under both federal and Georgia state law. 
But I'm getting ahead of myself. Initially, there was no recording. And according to that first misleading report, Trump had intimidated Georgia's election investigator, Frances Watson, who wasn't even identified in the original story, demanding that she, quote, find the fraud and saying that if she did, she would be, quote, a national hero. Numerous other news outlets repeated the story, insisting that they had independently verified it. The story was referenced during Trump's second impeachment trial. But it turns out... This was a lie, because the phone call said no such thing, as was revealed by the Wall Street Journal, who got a hold of an actual recording of the call. In a non-correction, WAPO added a correction, but the only change made was to remove the quotes, but leave the insinuation intact. The headline changed from, Find the Fraud. Trump pressured a Georgia elections investigator in a separate call legal experts say could amount to obstruction, to, Trump pressured a Georgia elections investigator in a separate call legal experts say could amount to obstruction, even though it's now known that she wasn't in any way pressured. Legal experts in all sorts of different news outlets said that Trump's words could amount to obstruction of justice, and that clearly isn't what happened. But the insinuation that Trump still committed a crime is still in the story. The call makes it clear that all Trump did was express his belief that election fraud actually took place. He expressed his belief that if she invested Fulton County, she would find dishonesty. His actual words were, quote, Whatever you can do, Francis, it would be, it's a great thing. It's an important thing for the country. So important. You've no idea. So important. And I very much appreciate it. The original story, as well as the verifications from other news outlets, all came from a single individual, Jordan Fuchs, the Deputy Secretary of State, who had to have known that she was illegally revealing the contents of a privileged settlement negotiation and lying about them to boot. By the way, Fuchs wasn't even a party to the call. The actual recording of the phone call was found by officials in the trash folder of Watson's computer. Why she recorded it, which is legally questionable at best, certainly leaking it to the press is, and why she tried to delete it is unknown, but she confirmed that she didn't perceive any pressure from Trump whatsoever. Also note that two different settlement conferences are being conflated, the shorter one with Watson and a longer one with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. And this raises an interesting question. Why would two different people, the chief investigator and the Secretary of State himself, independently get it into their heads to illegally violate attorney-client privilege and reveal the contents of a privileged settlement conference? So news outlets had to correct their stories, but their so-called corrections consisted mainly of removing quotes around phrases like find the fraud. CNN, for example, changed, Donald Trump urged the top investigator to, quote, find the fraud. Two, Donald Trump urged a top investigator to find fraud. No quotes. And like WAPO, the other outlets are still insisting that the substance of the calls is exactly as they reported it, which it just isn't. The phone calls and the parties involved have confirmed that there was no pressure from Trump, no threats or orders or anything, just his belief that fraud was there and they would find it if they investigated. They were doing it all on the word of someone who wasn't even there. Here's something to ponder. Is it worse to blindly pass on the word of an anonymous source as fact, or to have actually heard the call and lied about it? 
You might think the latter, and you may be right. But consider that anyone who does the former is not doing journalism at all. They're engaging in gossip, and their so-called reporting amounts to nothing more than spreading rumors. And the fact that so many other news outlets echoed the fake news showed that this is the face of journalism today. If it's not outright lies, it's at least unverified gossip and rumor-mongering. So all of that makes the Washington Post this week's biggest bogonimeter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's diff them, guys, this week's... Idiot And this week it goes to antivirus vendors who, once again, are seen to be abdicating their main job of protecting users from malware and instead acting to protect big content providers. BitTorrent is a protocol that makes it easy to download large files or large collections of files by spreading the bandwidth between multiple downloaders. When someone downloads part of a file and another downloader gets a different part, they exchange their downloaded parts with each other while getting new parts from other sources. The bandwidth gets spread around, relieving the burden on websites and other sources. The content providers hate BitTorrent because it makes it easy to share pirated movies and music. But it's also used for a lot of legitimate purposes. Your favorite Linux distro likely has an option to download as a torrent, saving much-needed expense. Big content alternatives such as Library use BitTorrent technology to serve videos and other content. So it's not just about piracy, but about competition. One of the most popular BitTorrent clients is MicroTorrent, also called uTorrent, since many people start the name with the lowercase u instead of the Greek letter mu. The antivirus programs, including Microsoft's Windows Defender and the popular Malwarebytes, have been labeling it as riskware, malware, and potentially unwanted software. When TorrentFreak ran the latest installer through VirusTotal, a service that shows how the different antivirus programs react to a particular file, 19 different companies flagged it, all for different reasons. Some even claim that it's unsafe or malicious. Another popular client, the open-source QBitTorrent, is flagged by many of them, too. In the case of Defender, it's often removed silently, not even notifying the user as it does with actual malware, even when the user has explicitly allowed it on the machine. Others have mixed experiences. Some claim it helps to install the portable version. Others say it works to install for all users and not just the current user. Microsoft gives no technical details as to why. 
They do, however, have a hard-to-find background doc that gives some generic non-answers. It has a category for Torrent software, claiming it's for the Enterprise version only, quote, Software that is used to create or download torrents or other files specifically used with peer-to-peer file-sharing technologies. Malwarebytes also flags Qubit Torrent, but the others don't seem to have a problem with it. The question is, why are they doing this? Is the argument that the software could be used to download something that, unbeknownst to the user, is actually a piece of malware other than what it appears? But then the same could be said of any web browser. It's one thing if it's a false positive. That happens with antiviruses. But this is clearly deliberate. Even if there's nothing nasty going on behind the scenes, it can still have the effect of putting barriers in the way of competing technologies. But that's not even the worst part. The worst part is that frustrated users will turn off their antivirus programs, making themselves and everyone else vulnerable as well. That's why it's important for antivirus companies to do their job and only take care of actual threats and not things that their parent companies or big media or governments don't like. So all of that makes these antivirus companies this week's... Idiot Well, that wraps up this... I'm not really foreign, you know. I just do it to appear more sophisticated. Edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Newton Lee. Peace is the only path to true security. And peace requires both free speech and willingness to listen. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives, 4.0 International License. Bogosity. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now.